Take my lips and speak to them. Take our hearts. And may your love set us on fire. May your love enliven our souls. May your love open our eyes. Amen. How is it with your soul just now? I, for one, am ready for this all to be over. Working from home is officially no longer a novelty. Short of going out onto the roof, I've finally run out now of new space to sit with my computer to attend Zoom meetings. Schooling from home is now over for us, but I see the kids' school teachers slowly developing schizoid-like personalities of their own, being teacher, lunch monitor, tech consultant, and classroom disinfector, all in a typical afternoon. Even our dog has lost it a little, following me around the house, leaving no more than a six-foot distance between the two of us at all times, and lamenting deeply each time any of us leave the house without her. When I look around the world of church work, things are also a little strange. A Catholic priest has been filmed dancing wildly in his robes to a rousing rendition of O Happy Day, and not to be outdone, an Episcopal cleric from the neighboring diocese of Georgia has become something of an internet sensation, belting out his own pandemic-inspired riff on Hamilton while gyrating down the aisle of his empty church. Across the pond, predictably, they've kept calm and carried on. The Dean of Canterbury, while offering a homily from the cathedral gardens, was filmed being stalked by a cat, who then disappeared under his cassock, never to return. And an unfortunate English parson got too close to the candle he'd lit and set his sleeve on fire at the end of evening prayer and now brings joy to millions on YouTube. Here at All Saints, we've had our fair share of online mishaps. I spent an entire noonday service recently offering prayers on mute. And a couple of weeks back, when for about the sixth time, my shaky internet connection booted me off our Wednesday evening on Reflection broadcast, Zach quickly noted that I must have been raptured. All in a day's work, as they say. Not to worry, of course. This is still All Saints, and we remain highly coordinated, planning well ahead, busy calling you and texting you and emailing you and Zoom meeting and praying and small group gathering with you. And yet there is nothing that can avoid the truth of the matter that we are not, in fact, with you. And that absence of life together in person is so very hard. This church is you. And we are feeling that reality every day. And I know you are feeling it not only with this, your parish, but in everything you miss in your life right now. All is not well with my soul while we live in this way. And it feels a little better simply to say that out loud. I suppose if I stopped here, you'd probably sympathize. At times, the secret to saying something worthwhile is to say less of it. 
Yet as tempting as delivering a confession or homily might be, I want to go on with this sermon and with this work because there is another at work in the midst of all of this challenge and trial named Jesus, who does not leave me or you alone to make our way unawares of the hope we might find in him. As a way of thinking about that, I want to invite us first to go in our minds to ancient Thessalonica, the setting of what is commonly held to be the first book written in the New Testament, the opening verses of which we heard read this morning. Thessalonica was the Delaware of its day, a free city with tax exemptions. Money flowed through it, as did power, situated as it was on the Via Ignatia trade route, connecting the Balkans to Asia Minor. In the Acts of the Apostles' record of Paul's visit there, his preaching in the Jewish quarter and elsewhere caused such a stir that the household of Jason, who had hosted Paul and his companions, was hauled before the city officials and charged as follows. These people who have been turning the world upside down, have come here. They're all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there is another king named Jesus. It would not be the first time that followers of Jesus were chased out of town or brought before the authorities or thrown into prison, and it would not be the last. As Paul writes to another early Jesus community, this time in Corinth, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The early church was willing to undergo remarkable hardship, persisting all the while to preach the gospel that had become known to them. The answer as to why they did so is offered in the portion of Thessalonians we hear today. Because God had chosen them. Not merely as God had chosen all the people of Israel, but specifically in how that movement of God had been made known to them in Jesus. What they had discovered was that in Jesus, the trials of life were being recast. They saw in Jesus an entirely new hope be born, one that proclaimed an entirely new sort of kingdom to the one whose weight they lived under every day. To appreciate just how much this way of Jesus constituted such a different kind of hope to the dominant ordering of life at the time, let us move to Matthew and the gospel passage we hear this morning of Jesus the Pharisees' disciples and Herodians, and the question of lawful taxation. At first glance, all that seems to be at play is just an ancient hearing on tax evasion or avoidance. However, what is really in operation is a very public challenge to Jesus to name where he stands in the world. The story is part of a long sequence of dispute stories in Matthew's Gospel, representing one form or other of established power, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, elders, experts in the law, each in conflict with Jesus. 
Yet the sequence of confrontations comes to a critical juncture in our reading today. Because it asks Jesus what he is going to choose in relation not to his fellow Jewish sects, but to the emperor. Pharisee, Sadducee, Essene, Zealot, or Jesus' follower all had to make their way under the power and authority of Roman Imperium. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that the Emperor Augustus promulgated, came not by argumentation, but by brutal force, with zero tolerance for dissent. Vasways of the population that Jesus moved among lived in abject poverty. And Caesar, who was proclaimed as the one who had brought glory back to Rome, deified as Savior and Lord, had been responsible for unspeakable misery for those who lay powerless before the might of his army. This simple coin, then, represented the choice that was before all those under Caesar's occupation of their lands, Jesus included. Step in line with this life-denying ordering of power or face the consequences. Given all of this, what sort of answer does Jesus offer? Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. If this were merely a debate about taxation, then Jesus' reply would simply be the words of a divinely inspired rule follower. Yet I have long understood Jesus' words here as an invitation to ask what exactly does belong to the emperor when placed in contradistinction to the maker of the heavens and the earth. Caesar can have his coin back, but after that, in a toss-up between this self-proclaimed God and the Lord God Almighty, Caesar gets nothing else. Read as such, it is a defiant moment, one which the followers of Jesus in ancient Thessalonica were willing to be brought before the city authorities to defend. Others would be willing to die for it, not just for the first years of Christianity, but for centuries to come. Why? They were willing to die for Jesus because everything had changed for them. On the inside of who they were, a new life had begun. They were no longer subject to other people's power, but freed by a love that transformed who they are and that transforms who we are too, should we let it. All is not well with my soul, but I am not alone. There are days when I feel like I have little good left to offer, yet I am not left merely to muster my own strength. The gospel we proclaim in Christ Jesus is more than a wistful story. It is a living hope that sets me free from having to be the author of my own salvation. Because of Jesus' love and grace in my life, I no, no longer need to pretend that I have the power to do all of this on my own. 
the hope that we find in Jesus' self-donating life and love will draw us deeper in should our hearts be open to it. It is indeed a power counter to the powers of this world. Although you and I can spend a lifetime amassing material things and apparent sources of security and stability, God's is a love that we cannot accumulate over time, but one that presents itself as a gift, new every morning. We are gifted the opportunity to be made new by that love, that through it we may slowly emerge our hearts to the awakening of grace. Whether things are well with your soul right now or not, whether you are still trying to make your choice this election for the next four years of this American life, or just trying to find your way through to next week, whatever trial or trouble you might feel is coming your way, I invite you to discover more of this living hope for yourself. We are not alone.